there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. I think when you sit and listen to a panel of women like these, you can't help but take away a little bit more than the writing advice. Um, It certainly feels more inclusive for me um, and it feels like it's an open space to discuss some of the issues that aren't um, prominent at other writers' festivals. Writes for Festivals proudly presents the Feminist Writers' Festival, Sydney, 2018. Supported by Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales and produced by Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is Writing Reproductively. This is a recording from the Feminist Writers Festival 2018 Sydney. We'd like to acknowledge that the festival was held on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd also like to thank our partner, the UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. Enjoy the podcast and connect with us on social media or via the FWF website, feministwritersfestival.com. Welcome to the 2018 Sydney Feminist Writers Festival. Uh, My name's Christy Clark and I'm a co-founder of the Feminist Writers Festival. Thank you for coming this evening to our session, Writing Reproductively. Now, I'd like to introduce you to our speakers. Our chair, Anne Brazel, is CEO of Family Planning New South Wales, a member of the New South Wales Health NGO Advisory Committee, a member for the UTS Dean's Health Industry Advisory Board, director of the Asia-Pacific Alliance for Reproductive and Sexual Health and Rights, member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, and a clinical psychologist, and has a, has a high level of experience in population health and community and hospital-based health service governance and management in Australia and in the international development arena. She has broad experience in clinical services, education, research, advocacy, and health service administration. Could you please welcome Anne? Joining us all the way from the US, uh, Gabrielle Stanley Blair is founder and CEO of Alt Summit, the creator and publisher of designmum.com, and her book Design Mum, How to Live with Kids, something we all need to know, (laughs) um, is a New York Times bestseller. On her website, Gabrielle covers the intersection of design and parenting while hosting compelling conversations on difficult topics, from gun control to family size to mental health. Most recently, her honest Twitter thread about abortion went viral and changed the way millions of people are talking about this divisive issue. And when I've finished introducing our speakers, we're going to start with that Twitter thread before we go into the, queue, the, the panel discussion. Uh, on the far end of our panel, Dr Maureen Faruqi is Green Senator for New South Wales. When Dr Faruqi joined the New South Wales Legislative Council in June 2013, She became the first Muslim elected to any parliament in Australia and is now the first Muslim woman in the Senate. Dr Faruqi's abortion law reform bill was the first ever bill in the history of New South Wales Parliament to decriminalise abortion and create safe access zones around reproductive health clinics. She was awarded Grand Stirrer at the 20th Edna Ryan Awards 
for the N12 campaign on abortion decriminalisation. Excellent finish there. <laughs> and finally, last but not least, Angela Williamson's career has crossed the public service, Liberal and Labor political offices and the not-for-profit not sector. Through these roles, she's secured outcomes for ocean conservation, environment, Indigenous affairs and women in sport. However, her recent experiences in reproductive health advocacy in Tasmania has given Angela her loudest voice. Could we please welcome everyone else? Hello, I am, uh, I'm here from Oakland, California. Oakland is part of the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I started my career in New York as a graphic designer and art director, and then in 2006 started Design Mom, and I've been writing online for a living ever since. In September, Brett Kavanaugh was uh, being vetted as a candidate for the US Supreme Court, and I heard a lot of men talking about women's reproductive rights, and what I heard was driving me bonkers. And I published a Twitter thread in response with my thoughts on abortion. I'm going to read it now. If you'd like to follow along, I'm at, at Design Mom on Twitter, and it's pinned. Um, okay, here we go. Okay, I'm a mother of six and a Mormon. So I have a good understanding of arguments surrounding abortion, religious or otherwise. I've been listening to men grandstand about women's reproductive rights, and I'm convinced men actually have zero interest in stopping abortion. Here's why. If you want to stop abortion, you need to prevent unwanted pregnancies. And men cause 100% of unwanted pregnancies. For real, they do. Um, perhaps you are thinking, it takes two to tango. <coughs> and yes, for intentional pregnancies, it does take two. But all unwanted pregnancies are caused by irresponsible ejaculations of men. Period. Don't believe me? Let me walk you through it. Let's start with this. With rare exception, a woman's egg is only fertile about two days each month. And that's for a limited number of years. That makes 24 days a year a woman is fertile. But men are fertile and can cause pregnancy 365 days a year. In fact, if you're a man who ejaculates multiple times a day, you could cause multiple pregnancies daily. In theory, a man could cause 1,000 plus unwanted pregnancies in just one year. And though their sperm gets crappier as they age, men can cause unwanted pregnancies from puberty until death. So just starting with basic biology plus the calendar, it's easy to see men are the real issue here. But what about birth control? If a woman doesn't want to risk an unwanted pregnancy, why wouldn't she just use birth control? If a woman can manage to figure out how to get an abortion, surely she can get birth control, right? Great questions. Modern birth control is possibly the greatest invention of the last century, and I am very grateful for it. It's also brutal. The side effects for many women are ridiculously harmful, so ridiculous that when an oral contraception for men was created, it wasn't approved because of the side effects. And the list of side effects was about a third as long as the known side effects for women's oral contraception. There's a lot to be unpacked just in that story, but I'll simply point out that as a society, we really don't mind if women suffer physically or mentally as long as it makes things easier for men. But good news, good news men, even with horrible side effects, women are still very willing to use birth control. Unfortunately, it's harder to get than it should be. Birth control options for women require a doctor's appointment and a prescription. It's not free and often not cheap. In fact, there are many people trying to make it more expensive 
by fighting to make sure insurance companies refuse to cover it. Oral contraceptives, oral contraceptives for women can't be acquired easily or at the last minute, and they don't work instantly. If we're talking about the pill, it requires consistent daily use and doesn't leave much room for mistakes, forgetfulness, or unexpected disruptions to daily schedules. And again, the side effects can be brutal. I'm still grateful for it. Please don't take it away. I'm just saying women's birth control isn't simple or easy. In contrast, let's look at birth control for men, meaning condoms. Condoms are readily available at all hours, inexpensive, convenient, and don't require a, prescri a prescription. They're 98% effective and work on demand instantly. Men can keep them stocked up just in case, so they're always prepared. They are so much easier than birth control options for women. As a bonus, in general, women love when men use condoms. They keep us from getting STDs. They don't lessen our pleasure during sex or prevent us from climaxing. And the best part, cleanup is so much easier. No waddling to the toilet as your jizz drips down our legs. <laughs> so why in the world are there ever unwanted pregnancies? Why don't men just use condoms every time they have sex? Seems so simple, right? Oh, I remember, men don't love condoms. In fact, men frequently pressure women to have sex without a condom, and it's not unheard of for men to remove the condom during sex without the woman's permission or knowledge. Pro tip, that's assault. Why would men want to have sex without a condom? Good question. Apparently, it's because for the minutes they are penetrating their partner, having no condom on gives the experience more pleasure. So there are men willing to risk getting a woman pregnant, which means literally risking her life, her health, her social status, her relationships, and her career so that they can experience a few more minutes of slightly more pleasure? Is that for real? Yes. Yes, it is. What are we talking about here pleasure-wise? If there's a pleasure scale with pain beginning at zero and going down into the negatives, a back scratch falling at five and an orgasm without a condom, being a 10, where would sex with a condom fall? Like a seven or eight? So it's not like sex with a condom is not pleasurable, it's just not as pleasurable, an eight instead of a 10. Let me emphasize that again, men regularly choose to put women at massive risk by having non-condom sex in order to experience a few minutes of slightly more pleasure. Now, keep in mind for the truly condom averse, uh, Men also have a non-condom, always ready birth control built right in called the pullout. It's not perfect, and it's a favorite joke, but according to Planned Parenthood, it is 96% effective when used correctly and 78% effective in practice if you don't quite know how to use it correctly. So surely, surely we can expect men who aren't wearing a condom to at the very least pull out every time they have sex, right? Nope. And why not? Well, again, apparently it's slightly more pleasurable to climax inside a vagina than, say, on their partner's stomach. So men are willing to risk the life, health, and well-being of women in order to experience a tiny bit more pleasure for, like, five seconds during orgasm. It's mind-boggling and disturbing when you realize that's the choice men are making. And honestly, I'm not as mad as I should be about this because we've trained men from birth that their pleasure is of utmost importance in the world, and to disassociate sex and pregnancy. While we're here, let's talk a bit more about pleasure and biology. 
did you know that as a general rule, a man can't get a woman pregnant without having an orgasm? Yes, there are exceptions. It's possible for sperm to show up and pre-ejaculate. But in most cases, a man has to orgasm in order to impregnate a woman, which means that we can conclude getting a woman pregnant is a pleasurable act for men. But did you further know that men can get a woman pregnant without her feeling any pleasure at all? In fact, it's totally possible for a man to impregnate a woman even while causing her excruciating pain, trauma, or horror. In contrast, a woman can have nonstop orgasms with or without a partner and never once get herself or anyone else pregnant. <laughs> a woman's orgasm has literally nothing to do with pregnancy or fertility. Her clitoris exists not for creating new babies, but simply for pleasure. No matter how many orgasms she has, they won't make anyone pregnant. Pregnancies can only happen when men have an orgasm. Unwanted pregnancies can only happen when men orgasm irresponsibly. What this means is a woman can be the sluttiest slut in the entire world who loves having orgasms all day long and all night long, and she will never find herself with an unwanted pregnancy unless a man shows up and ejaculates irresponsibly. Women enjoying sex does not equal unwanted pregnancy and abortion. Men enjoying sex and having irresponsible ejaculations is what causes unwanted pregnancies and abortion. Let's talk more about responsibility. Men often don't know and don't ask and don't think to ask if they've caused a pregnancy. They may never think of it or associate sex with making babies at all. Why? Because there are zero consequences for men who cause unwanted pregnancies. If the woman decides to have an abortion, the man may never know he caused an unwanted pregnancy with his irresponsible ejaculation. If the woman decides to have the baby or put the baby up for adoption, the man may never know that there's now a child walking around with 50% of his DNA. If the woman does tell him that he caused an unwanted pregnancy and that she's having the baby, the closest thing to a consequence for him is that he may need to pay child support. But our child support, our current child support system is well known to be a joke. Only 61% of men or women who are legally required to pay it do. There are little to no repercussions for skipping out. In some states, their credit isn't even affected. So many men keep going as is, causing unwanted pregnancies with irresponsible ejaculations and never giving it a thought. When the topic of abortion comes up, they might think, abortion is horrible. Women should not have abortions and never once consider the man who caused the unwanted pregnancy. If you're not holding men responsible for unwanted pregnancies, then you are wasting your time. Stop protesting at clinics, stop shaming women, stop trying to overturn abortion laws. If you actually care about reducing or eliminating the number of, of abortions in our country, simply hold men responsible for their actions. What would that look like? What if there was a real and immediate consequence for men who cause an unwanted pregnancy? What kind of consequence would make sense? Should it be as harsh, painful, nauseating, scarring, expensive, risky, and life-altering as forcing a woman to go through a nine-month unwanted pregnancy? In my experience, men really like their testicles. <laughs> if irresponsible ejaculations were putting their balls at risk, perhaps they would stop being irresponsible. Does castration sound like a cruel and unusual punishment? Maybe, but is it worse than forcing 500,000 women a year to puke daily for three months, gain 40 pounds, and then rip their bodies apart in childbirth? 
Is a handful of castrations worse than women dying during forced childbirth and pregnancy? Put a castration law on the books, implement the law, let the media tell the story, and in three months or less, ta-da, abortions will have virtually disappeared. Can you picture it? No more abortions in less than three months without ever trying to outlaw them. Amazing. For those of you who consider abortion to be murder, wouldn't you be on board with having a handful of men castrated if it prevented 500,000 murders a year? And if not, is that because you actually care more about policing women's bodies, morality, and sexuality than you do about reducing or eliminating abortions? Hey, you can even have the men who will be castrated bank their sperm before it happens, just in case they want to responsibly have kids someday. Can't wrap your head around a physical punishment for men? Even though you seem to be more than fine with physical punishments for women, okay, then how about this idea for prevention? At the onset of puberty, all males in the US could be required by law to get a vasectomy. Vasectomies are very safe, highly reversible, and about as invasive as getting an IUD implanted. There is some soreness afterwards for about 24 hours, but that's pretty much it for side effects. So much better than the pill, which is taken by millions of women in our country, the side effects of which are well known and can be brutal. If or when the male becomes a responsible adult and perhaps finds a mate, if they want to have a baby, the vasectomy can be reversed and then redone once the childbearing stage is over. And each male can bank their sperm before the vasectomy just in case. It's not that wild of an idea when you consider that 80% of males in the US are circumcised, most as babies, and circumcision is not reversible. Don't like my ideas? That's fine. I'm sure there are better ones. Go ahead and suggest your own. My point is that it's nonsense to focus on women if you're trying to get rid of abortions. Abortion is the treatment for unwanted pregnancy. If you want to stop abortions, you need to prevent the disease, unwanted pregnancies. And the only way to do that is by focusing on men because men cause 100% of unwanted pregnancies. Or in other words, irresponsible ejaculations by men cause 100% of unwanted pregnancies. If you're a man, what would the consequence need to be for you to never again ejaculate irresponsibly? Would it be money related? maybe a loss of rights or freedoms, physical pain. Ask yourselves, what would it take for you to value the life of your sexual partner more than your own temporary pleasure or convenience? Last example, and we'll wrap this up. Think of another great pleasure in life. Let's say food. Think of your favorite meal, dessert, or drink. What if you found out that every time you indulge in that favorite food, you risk causing great physical and mental pain to someone you know intimately. You might not cause any pain, but it's a real risk. Well, you'd probably be sad, but never indulge in that food again, right? Not worth the risk. And then, what if you further found out there was a simple thing you could do before you ate that favorite food, and it would eliminate the risk of causing pain to someone else, which is great news, but... The simple thing you need to do makes the experience of eating the food slightly less pleasurable. To be clear, still very pleasurable, but slightly less so. Like maybe you have to eat the food with a fork or spoon that you don't particularly like. Would you be willing to do that simple thing and eliminate the risk of causing pain to someone you know every single time you ate your favorite food? Of course you would. Condoms or even pulling out is that simple thing. Don't put women at risk. Don't choose to maximize your own pleasure if it risks causing women pain. Men mostly run our government. Men mostly make the laws. 
and men could eliminate abortions in three months or less without ever touching an abortion law or even mentioning women. In summary, stop trying to control women's bodies and sexuality. Unwanted pregnancies are caused by men. Thank you, Gabrielle. That was fantastic. Now we're going to start a conversation, and uh, actually I'll just get the microphones passed to each of the panellists today. As we said before, I'm Anne Brassel, I'm the CEO of Family Planning, but I've been working in reproduction, <coughs> sexual and reproductive health and rights for a very long time. I do that in Australia, New South Wales particularly, but across Australia and internationally. So I'm really I'm immersed in this world, and there's a lot more to reproductive rights than just issues around abortion, but abortion is such a pointy issue and such an area of concern from a political perspective, from a human rights perspective, and for women, um, because it's, abortion is never an easy issue to come to terms with. So I'm going to turn part of the conversation tonight into some in, into issues around abortion and get these these women to talk about it from very different perspectives. Um, we're going to do this in in the context of you know thinking about bodily autonomy and what that means for women. We're going to talk about about what it means when you talk about it and the price you might have to pay for talking about it. And we won't get across that in massive depth, but we will get there. And then we'll talk a little bit more. We'll come back to Gabrielle and talk about reproductive rights and men's role in in taking being part of the decision uh, to take control around reproduction. So I'm going to just start by kicking to Angela. Um, and I don't know if you do know, but Angela was used to work for Cricket Australia. And she's going to talk to us about her story and really talk her personal experience uh, fairly recently and I think most of us are aware of it and then um, maybe some things that will come out of that. But you'll have, you'll have an opportunity to ask questions later anyway. Uh, thank you very much and thank you for everyone's time and the opportunity to talk about this issue, an issue that back in Tasmania is something that apparently I should be ashamed of. I should take into account all the stigma associated with abortion or talking about my personal circumstances. So I really value the opportunity to tell my story and talk about what I experienced with the view of hopefully other women in Tasmania and right across Australia uh, not having to go through necessarily what I went through. Um, back in 2013, Tasmania got some really great reproductive health legislation. This provided um, safe access zones, it provided details and it provided safety security, which is really important for women when making this particular decision. Um, we had a change of government and then after that government what's happened uh, since then was the three providers operating in Tasmania closed. They were low-cost providers. They all closed. Um, so the ability to access this service had gone. It had completely disappeared. You had to meet a particular criteria from a policy perspective to access in a public hospital. And then a, another provider came on board, but it was two and a half thousand dollars to get this service. So we went from about $500 to $2,500. The government at the time um, used language like abortion on demand. We're not going to cover that. Hospitals are for saving women's lives. They're not for these kinds of services. So it was quite a traumatic um, environment or culture at the time. 
And little did I know I was pregnant and had made the decision when I found out that I wasn't going to continue this, that all of a sudden I had no pathways. All my doors were closed. Um, There was no voice. I was just listening to what politicians were saying at the time, um, both state and federal, and they were all telling me, it's okay, get on a plane and go to Melbourne. You'll be right. Um, And things along those lines. And so here you are, having made one of the hardest decisions in your life, and you don't have clear pathways and you are feeling dark and it's alone and you are really impacted. I'm sure everyone has different experiences, um, but mine was, um, I think, a little bit tangled as well because there was an election. Uh, My partner was working for Labor. I'm an ex-staffer from the Premier um, of Tasmania and I just sat there feeling really let down by people that I'd trusted, people I'd spent my whole lives working for in one way or another. And so I spoke out, I spoke out through Twitter, I provided my story um, to the media Um, and my story is, it's quite complicated because I was, as I said, rejected from Tasmanian services, I had to fly to Melbourne, Um, I was in Melbourne for four days for the service and then I came back and on my return um, I was trolled by a campaign staffer for speaking up about the services. Um, And that just made me even more determined to speak up and add a voice, add some evidence, provide a story to this particular reform and this debate. Little did I know what was necessarily ahead. Um, But each time there was a conversation in the public and it was um, put back or there was a barrier or people were like, we'll deal with that later or we're looking at that. I was determined to keep keep speaking. I was really fortunate that through this process, um, people that weren't necessarily my friends prior to that really backed me in and there were all these people that were advocates themselves or had personal experiences and um, I'd spoken to them about my circumstances and so they they supported me and they gave me ideas and, and what I could do because I had this really strong social justice agenda. I wanted this to change. I didn't think the people who were in charge understood fully what it meant. I felt that the legislation was eroded, that the environment was tainted and that there was going to be no action and if... The government weren't going to listen to the experts. Would they listen to me? Would they listen to someone who had gone through this? I'd kept a diary of sorts throughout my experiences purely for the view of sharing it if I needed to, name withheld, confidential, but to explain what the pathways looked like and and, and what what it meant and how it felt. And so, yes... Today I sit here and I'm known as or referred to as the woman who got sacked by Cricket Australia. Um, I might be referred to as the woman who outed the Premier's office involvement in trolling, um, the woman who had an abortion, the woman who flew, flew to Melbourne, all these different aspects. But I'm just a mum. I'm a girlfriend. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm a colleague. I'm your friend. I, I'm just one of you and... The hope I had was that by telling my story and and normalising this service and, and health services that hopefully people would look at this differently. Hopefully the politicians would see this for what it really is, which is public health. This should not be something I should be ashamed of, should be allowed to speak about it um, and certainly shouldn't have 
the significant losses that I had over over the past six months. So there's my umbrella of life. <laughs> Can I ask you, Angela, um, was there a price you had to pay for being brave and talking about it personally? Yeah, most definitely. And I think I'm still paying that price to tell you the truth. I think when you stand up for something like this and you make people uncomfortable with a topic like this and you don't um, take on board their whole, well, we won't tell anyone, it's okay, it's your secret. I think that people don't necessarily understand what I was doing or why I was doing it, what it meant. But for me, it was therapy. It was um, making sure this doesn't happen. And I, I'm absolutely gutted that here we are 10 months later and there still isn't a low-cost service provider in Tasmania. It's still exactly how it was back in in February for me. Would you do it again? Would you talk about yourself so publicly again? Yeah, absolutely, because it's meant that uh, there's, since that date, people are talking about this topic. There are conversations over the dinner table. There are people that may not necessarily have agreed with my position, but were really unhappy with sort of what happened post that. There are people that are holding the government to account and looking for solutions. So I guess partly what you're saying is that through your talking out and your being brave about talking about this for women, you also was were able to create a collective of people around you who were then able to be part of an action in relation to this. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I think in Tasmania we have rallies and we have, you know, social media and there are ways of passing on messages and, and working collectively. So, uh, as I said, I thought that there was just... A, a gap, a voice. Um, when I've seen politicians move heaven and earth, it's always been when someone has come in with a personal story, personal circumstances, what are the ramifications and, and they typically respond quite quickly. Thank you, Angela. I'm going to move on to Maureen. Um, I think a lot of you do know, know Maureen Faruqi and she's been a real champion for um, abortion rights in New South Wales. So, Maureen, would you like to give us some background on your experience how long do you have, Anne? <laughs> We're very interested to hear, Maureen. Yeah. Thank you, Anne, and hi, everyone. Um, and thank you so much, Jenna, for inviting me. I feel really honoured to be in the company of these amazing women. Um, and Angela, for me, you will always be the woman who had the courage to do what was right and a real inspiration for so many of us as well who were fighting similar, um, similar fights. So thank you so much for what you did. So I might start my story in Pakistan uh, and move on very quickly. <laughs> I won't give you my whole life story. Um, but, you know, some of you know that, um, you know, that's the country of my birth and my ancestors. And it is a country also quite well known in the media for, uh, you know, being quite low on the gender inequality scale. Um, and, you know, I kind of grew up in that environment being very aware of, um, you know, the rights that women did not have. But I was also very lucky to grow up with an aunt, um, you know, who was very close to me. And I can remember conversations at, you know, on the dining table when she was the only one who actually had a voice on uh, women's equality and gender equality. So very lucky in that sense. But also while growing up, you know, you think about Australia or countries like the US as having, that's the, the concept I had when growing up, that they, everything was equal. 
And those countries had, you know, reached gender equality in every sense of the word. Um, so lo and behold, when I got here in 1992, um, you know, I came here on a Saturday and actually started my master's at the University of New South Wales in civil engineering on the Monday. Um, and there was only one woman lecturer in the whole school. This is 1992. So I was shocked. And then you started looking into statistics. You've, you know, pay gap. You've heard domestic violence. So all those things um, kind of existed there. So that did come as a bit of a shock to me. Um, but of course, you know, patriarchy exists everywhere, whether it's Pakistan or whether it's the US or whether um, it's Australia. And then the twists and turns of life in 2013 brought me to the Upper House of New South Wales Parliament. Um, and within the first couple of weeks, the first bill that I had to contemplate was a bill, some of you might remember, it was a fetal personhood bill, also known as Zoe's Law, uh, which um, you know the Christian Democrats, Reverend Fred Nile, had put up even before I got there, tried to um, kind of debate that bill many times. But this time around, it was happening in the lower house and, you know, by... Um, I think it was a liberal MP. And this is a bill that was going to, the effect of the bill would have been to give, um, you know, fetuses while they were part of a mother's body independent legal status. And it was especially dangerous for New South Wales where we already had abortion in the Crimes Act and it would have been just another barrier uh, for women. So we very quickly gathered a lot of people from all sides of politics um, and, you know, the women's movement and said, what do we do? Let's start a campaign. Um, and this is what happens when we get together. We did build a massive campaign. The bill did pass. This is how bad the situation is in some of our states. Um, in Australia, the, the bill did pass the lower house, uh, but the upper house, there were more sensible people in the upper house. Um, you know, we, they knew that they didn't have the numbers, so it never uh, came up for debate even. Uh, but it's back on the agenda at the moment again. I think Reverend Fred Nile has put that back in the upper house. Uh, but the story of that was, and the lesson we all learned from that was, that we can't just put, keep putting all this energy into defending our rights all the time. That we really need to move forward and try and decriminalize abortion. Run a proactive campaign. Um, so that's how we started. Um, for, and five years on, we did debate the bill in the Upper House of New South Wales Parliament. Uh, but it's, I often say it's one of the hardest things that I have done in life, and I've done quite a few hard things. And I think it was really hard because when I started talking about the bill in uh, you know, my colleagues in Parliament with the other parties, there were two very strong messages I was getting. One, of course, the Conservative MPs um, who, were, who were not like, who were anti-choice, obviously, didn't want this. But what I was really surprised was by people who were pro-choice didn't want me to bring this up. And some of their reasonings were around, it's really dangerous, something will go wrong. You know, women do access abortions through a loophole in the law in New South Wales, so don't touch it. And they said that very angry, angrily to me. I, I'll be very honest with you. Um, and my argument to them was, we waited more than 100 years. Like, this is not the right time. They kept telling me this is not the right time. When will there be the right time? Someone has to start talking about it. Someone has to put this on the agenda. Where I got a lot of support was from the community, you know, from students, from universities, from young women, young men who really wanted things to change. And they just would not swallow this argument that this is not the right time. 
Um, and so we did go ahead with it. And the more you talk to the community, the more you talk to people, you realize a lot of people actually didn't know about it. Mm. A lot of people thought the, uh, that abortion had been fully decriminalized, that it was legal. Um, and, and you realize that if you, it depends on where you live, what your postcode is, what your bank balance is, and also what your skin color is as to how you're able to access abortion through that particular loophole. And if you don't live around the coast, and if you don't have the money, uh, and if you are not a white person, then it is really, really hard. And I've been to regional areas many times during our campaign, and especially one place, which is Albury, where there is one clinic, a pregnancy termination clinic, which serves like a huge area, hundreds of kilometers. Um, and there's a doctor that used to fly in from Melbourne, mm. like I think three Thursdays a month, to actually perform that procedure. And every Thursday, there was a huge gauntlet of people standing outside the clinic, um, those sidewalk counselors. And they were doing atrocious things like handing out plastic fetuses to patients going in and out. And this is just across the border, like Albury is just across the border from Victoria, where it was all legalized. They had safe access zones. So a lot of people were actually going to Victoria to have that procedure done. And for me, I think it was completely unpalatable that in this day and age, in the 21st century, women don't have that autonomy to make decisions about their own bodies. That even at the end of the day, even through that legal loophole, it is the doctor who is making that decision for them. It is not their decision. And doctors were telling me that they find it like a farcical thing to have to say, um, not that this woman, you know, she's made that choice, but that because there are economic circumstances or, you know, or because there are other circum social circumstances that this has to happen. Um, so the bill did get debated. With the, I think both the parties tried very hard, both the big parties for us, not to debate the bill. Because I think they actually didn't want to confront. They didn't want to out how they would vote. So we did get the bill debated. It was a huge campaign that was built up. And on the day it was debated, my daughter, who was 21 last year, she came. Um, with my husband to the chamber. And I have not seen my daughter so shell-shocked. The bill got defeated. She came out of the chamber crying, and she said, don't ever ask me to come here again. Mm. Uh, and part of her, um, of course, you know, you know, how shocked she was, as was the rest of the people who had come to visit, was how can in this day and age MPs vote against such a basic right that nearly everyone in Australia except Queensland, who now do have that, because we were actually running parallel campaigns as well. I was working quite closely with Rob Pine, the independent member, and no one has actually acknowledged him and his role, I have to say. So I will say that he is the one who had the courage as well to put that on the, on the political agenda for the first time. And I think for my daughter, the second thing was that even MPs who stood up and supported or voted for the bill just were completely bashing me in their speeches. Um, so she couldn't understand what was going on, basically. So I guess I might leave that there as a story. But you know what happened after that is my bill had decriminalization and safe access. Because it was on the agenda and there was huge community appetite to make this change, we have in New South Wales now passed safe access zones. So we do have safe access zones. And I think we're very close. We are very close to getting abortion law reform as well. There is some movement in the Labour Party suggesting 
um, that that will change. And, you know, and that's what the whole campaign was about, to talk about something that the parliament has, had refused to talk about for 117 years. Thank you, Maureen. I do want to acknowledge that you've already talked about the fact that there was a strong personal price for you in, in also you being so brave as to take the actions that you did over such a long period of time. Um, I can't tell you how determined Maureen was. I, I'm very well aware of that. And uh, the other thing I think that I take from what you said, although there were massive disappointments and massive disappointments in the political system in New South Wales, not just felt by Maureen but by a lot of us in terms of the true um, representational democracy that, democracy that we are sometimes lacking, um, is that there was a solidarity that you found. And I think one of the things you've talked about is how the community came together around that and that we're, a lot of us are very clear and Maureen's very clear that the community is around this and supporting this. So just a, a, a final question to you about this, Maureen. What lessons can other regions learn or can we learn about the power of collective action following abortion law reform in Queensland? I think nothing changes unless people want it to change. And that I've always believed in that. I've always been an activist. And I believe that change actually comes from outside parliament. The communities and people actually force change from their representatives. But there were a couple of other lessons that I learned as well. Um, sad but true that politicians will not change or will not do anything risky unless we force them to. So I think that's really important. There is no other way to create that change. And also I think it's important, the accountability aspect is very important. In Australia, we do have a system which is more representative democracy, like we vote every three or four years and then we leave politicians to do whatever they want, literally. So I think we have to make sure that the politicians who promise that they will do some things, that they are held accountable after they are re-elected. I think that's really important. Uh, but, you know, you just the collective action. I went across the state, region to region, and it was so clear that there was hardly anyone in those communities who didn't think that having abortion in the Criminal Act was a crazy thing to do. Mm. And, you know, the only people who ran a campaign against it were the usual suspects, like the Australian Christian Lobby, for instance. And their whole campaign was running on myths and mistruths about what abortion was when women had abortions. And it was disgusting, disgusting, because what they were saying was that if abortion was decriminalized, women would start having abortions at nine months. I mean, it was so disrespectful and so crazy at another level. Um, and, you know, some MPs fell for that. They really did. So I guess what happened in that chamber, people probably hopefully are ashamed of that, mm -hmm. because what I saw was real misogyny and patriarchy happening. It was the thing about not handing over control. Um, you know, people thought that they, they should control. Men thought that they should control women's bodies and that women couldn't be trusted to make that decision on their own, that they need to be these laws that shackle women somehow to make a different decision. We know that they don't because women still make that decision, but they have to jump through hoops to make those decisions. And, and I think, too, in terms of Queensland, we've also learned the power of community action and in Victoria. Um, and so it's going to be the challenge for us all of getting the community to rise, particularly women and men, to rise and speak about this 
and to hold their parliamentarians accountable, not for their conscience vote, but for their representation of their community. It's interesting issues, aren't they? Um, so I'm going to move away from that and go back to Gabrielle um, and, and really start to explore um, wh why are men reluctant to take reproductive control? Go, you know, let's go back to that discussion about um, every unwanted pregnancy is caused by an irresponsible ejaculation. So, Gabriel, you have strong views on this, clearly. Um, can you talk more about why you think men are reluctant to take reproductive control? Um, I, I think it's because we've allowed them to. Like, we've never asked them to. Um, I, I, this is patriarchy f eons, eons and eons back. I mean, I, I imagine there were uh, a good portion of history where people weren't clear on who was getting who pregnant and how any of this was working. But obviously, we have DNA tests now. We have responsibility now. It's totally changed. So for the first time in maybe in history, we can say very quickly upon finding out someone is pregnant, we can know exactly who the father is, who fathered the baby, and, hold, and ask men to be responsible. We haven't been able to do that before. Um, and in fact, as DNS, DNA tests are, I don't know if they're, if, is that a popular thing to do in Australia, get your DNA tested? It's, it's very, very expensive and okay. people are worried about the legal sides of that, particularly in terms of their future health um, insurances, those things. It's complicated. Well, people are slightly worried about that, but more curious in America. So everyone's <laughs> getting their tests done. And, and there are all sorts of stories of people finding out their father isn't their father or they have a secret sister or sibling that was anyway... That, that's been our history. We know that. But now that everything's, you know, the internet has changed everything. There are no more secrets. Whatever you're doing will be found out. And, and we have a real chance now to hold, um, to shift the conversation because it has been seen as only a female thing, abortion. So a, a, a woman's health, woman's healthcare thing, which I, I totally understand that. But why are Un, so many un, unwanted pregnancies happening. What's happening there? And why aren't we holding men accountable? So we talk about criminalizing abortion, but is there a mirrored law that criminalizes the man's action? I'm not aware of one in the U.S. I can't imagine there's one here. And I, I think we can really start talking to our politicians about this. If they, and I can only speak to the U.S., but abortion really is this lightning rod thing that an, a, a politician can say, I am anti-abortion, and I'm going to uh, try and overturn Roe versus Wade. And instantly, they have the right-wing vote. That's all they have to say. They don't have to say how they're going to do it. They don't have to say. They don't even have to tell you that they've in fact paid for an abortion for their mistress, or you know, or that they actually don't actually care about this at all. They just say the words. It's Donald Trump. You think he actually cares about um, stopping abortion? Of course not. He just says the words, and he has their support, right? So, so taking the time now to say, okay, if you really care about this, if you really want to stop abortions, how are you holding men responsible? How are you providing more uh, free birth control, which we have statistics, we have research that that's what lowers um, the amount of abortions. So we have the opportunity now. We haven't had it before. We haven't had the research. We haven't had the data. We do now. And we can hold men responsible. So clearly there's a number of options for us to hold men accountable. We can castrate them. <laughs> <laughs> Just cut off um, their balls. We, we can... 
We can use the judicial. Uh, by the way, Gabriel's husband's <laughs> here in the audience. <laughs> um, so, or we can use the judicial system to try and change the laws, which I also agree. I'm not also agreeing with castration necessarily. I'm not ruling it out either. But I certainly, I certainly agree in relation to the judicial system. But when you're talking about we mm -hmm. holding men accountable, are you talking about whom? Um, I suppose I'm talking about... I'm thinking of American citizenry. And I'm thinking of... Um, I just I have these intense discussions with with women about abortion and those that fall politically right on the right side um, really will talk to me about how abortion is murder and they they that once there's a beating heart it's murder and I'll say okay well like when my father died we his heart was beating we had to turn off the machines he was brain dead did we murder him and they'll go. Uh, well, technically, yeah. I mean, it just gets crazy. And so I'm going, okay, um, we, we're, we're talking nonsense here. We're just being crazy and we're not being realistic. So let's really talk about, let's hold, let's hold this conversation accountable. Why, why are people having abortions? What is happening here? Why are they getting pregnant in the first place when they don't want to be? What's happening? Why don't they have birth control? Why is that so hard? What's happening? Why aren't there male forms of birth control? Why aren't we putting money into that research? And really saying, if you're really serious and you're saying this is your one issue, because for a huge chunk of America, this is their issue. It's their one issue. They will vote for the politician that says they're anti-abortion, period. If that's the case, then you better be able to discuss this intelligently and understand who's responsible, what's happening, and where money's going to actually prevent abortion. And it's not, being, it's not happening right now. I'd perhaps like to take it one step further and say um, it's not women's responsibility alone, but women also need to make men accountable for their behaviour as well and for engaging in the process of judicial change and societal change. Um, they're not solely responsible, but women also need to rise and speak about these issues that are so powerfully affecting women's lives. Mm. So I just want to throw... We need to get to the Q&A, actually, um, and there's so much more to talk about. But I just want to pose a question to all of the panel before we do. But before we do, I want to you know, bring to your memory that picture of Donald Trump and that group of men signing up for the global gag rule again. Um, and I think most here would know what the global gag rule. It was basically not providing any international aid money for any organisation who talked to women in any way about any of their contraceptive options if one of those was even talking to a woman about whether she'd considered abortion and what that might be, mean for her. So, I mean, but remember that image of the men making that decision. So I just want to challenge the panel to say... Um, do we have to engage men in, in taking reproductive control or have they already taken it? Are they already demonstrating their reproductive control through their current stance of using condoms less, of reducing access to contraception, of reducing access to comprehensive sexuality education in schools? Because that's what's happening here. Um, by fighting and reducing access to abortion services because 
irrespective of what's happening with the constructive changes and laws, we've had a whole number of situations where there's less access to abortion services. And abortion services aren't available for women who can't afford them. Maureen referred to that, but that's absolutely the case. Um, and are they doing this already as a way of controlling women? Um, maintaining the patriarchy, maintaining their power base, which is a very seductive position for them to be in. Um, and ensuring that women aren't achieving the equality that they want. So um, I might throw to you, Maureen, first, maybe just a short answer. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, of course. I, I mean, for me, and I say it very proudly, that I am, always will be, always have been feminist as fuck. You know, that's one thing, that's one thing that we have to really loudly and clearly give a message. I know that there have been discussions and... You know, women sometimes moving away from, you know, that label of feminism. And, you know, I, I, I am also very proudly a mother of a young man who I think is a huge feminist as well. So it's not something only women can do. It is a thing that men and other genders can do as well. And I think that's really important. So for me, in all this debate, it is, it is bringing down the patriarchy. Mm, yeah. and, and we can't do it alone. We cannot do it alone. Uh, we need everyone in society to work on that. Angela? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, definitely needs to be everyone contributing to this, whatever age you are, whatever political um, leaning you are, or whatever you feel about this particular issue. At the end of the day, it's a human rights issue um, and it shouldn't have these barriers and I think the other part to that, though, is I'd like to see more politicians or, or more community members become politicians or enter politics or contribute to political debate and reform so that then everyone's views are being represented because I sit there and I look around my uh, like local government in Taz and the current government, there is no one there that represents me. There is no one there that is who I am, represents my family and friends, represents our values and our principles. And values and principles have just fallen out of politics across Australia. And the absence of values and principles means, I think, that people don't look at this using heart and common sense and the feels. And instead, it's reading a black and white piece of paper from a department brief or something along those lines. So I'm calling for whether it is men or women or whoever to put their hand up, to participate in politics, to represent the community, to not get hijacked by this desire to stay in government forever or stay in their seat forever and make a deal with the devil kind of thing to, the, to our expense. So that's my emphasis. And Gabrielle? I mean, right now in the US, I have this feeling of just wanting to burn it all down. It's, <laughs> it just seems to be like just moving backwards at lightning speed. Um, I, the most encouraging thing I've heard lately is that there's a group um, that helps women who want to run for office. If you're thinking about running for office, you're not sure how to go about it, how to go about it, you can contact this group and they can uh, help you out. And in the last election cycle, uh, so that would be 2016, um, there were 9,000 women across the country that, that reached out. In this election cycle, we, we vote next week for our midterm elections. Um, there have been 140,000 women that have reached out and are running for office. And um, 
and I, I, I really think you need re equal representation. Um, as, as even if you have the best men that are, you know, kind and compassionate and thoughtful, they do not have the, uh, they don't live the woman's experience. They just don't, and they're not going to think of things. They're not going to ask the right questions because they don't have that experience. And th in the same way that I couldn't ask the right questions about a man's lived experience. You really need equal representation and whatever it takes to get more women in office, that's what we gotta do. Thank you all, but now I'm gonna kick it to the audience for questions. Okay, I would like to address my question really to the whole panel. Um, and part of the other uh, way in which abortion has recently been on the agenda and, and has been talked about uh, in the media in Australia is because of White Ribbon's position on abortion and a backflip on policy. Um, and I guess from my point of view, uh, running a network of women's shelters, we see a huge amount of reproductive coercion and sexual assault experienced by women who are also experiencing domestic and family violence. And so I guess on the positive side, what, what I can see is a little bit of now more discussion about where people might have said before, okay, well, how does how do issues like abortion intersect with domestic and family violence? How can we all seize this moment to talk more effectively about reproductive coercion and how the role of the sexual, um, sexual assault, reproductive coercion intersects with issues like domestic and family violence? I might start then. <laughs> Look, we've just got to talk about it. Women have to talk about it. We have to raise it on the agenda. We have to explain what it means. And we have to explain what it means to people in power. We have to explain what it means to politicians. We've got to explain what it means to women. We've got to have comprehensive sexuality education in schools that's not um, being restricted these days like it is. Um, I don't know if you know, but um, they've taken... Um, comprehensive sexuality education about consent and choices out of the year 11 and 12 curriculum at school and re recently in New South Wales and replaced it with driving lessons and finance. Um, so anything about gender is now removed from the curriculum. We have to work as a community and talk about these things. That's my, that's what I think. Does anybody else want to talk about it? Yeah, I just wanted to touch um, really briefly on all the work by COAG and you look at um, the the federation aspect and the role that they play and they've taken quite a strong role on domestic violence and there is a really nice blueprint there. Um, so I think that there is an opportunity there but I do think that everyone needs to work collectively and it's not just one state or it's not just the feds. It really needs to bring everyone together because the approach is quite fragmented right across Australia. But the link that you've talked about, so in Tasmania there's a policy that if you are vulnerable and vulnerable has the domestic violence element, it also has some socioeconomic aspects as well. But if you meet that criteria then you can access this service a particular way at no cost. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's joined. It's joined there. But that narrative is not public mm. um, because the people who should be telling that story, again, have put it in a, it should be secret, it should be kept quiet, this is shameful, this is um, private. And, and I totally respect the privacy around this particular issue and the privacy link to the domestic violence aspect. But it's, it's already there. It's just no one's willing to narrate that story because it's an ugly story and it... it, it makes people uncomfortable and um, and it shouldn't be like that. And so we need to take control of that story. You know, I think the close link between domestic violence and 
you know, coercion and reproductive rights is that same control. Mm. You know, we see that in, in, in you know, both those situations. And, and I have to say about White Ribbon as well, I think it's pretty shameful, the position that they've taken. I'll, I'll say it openly. I said it the day they did it. I mean, here's an organization which purportedly, um, you know, is against domestic violence and stands up. Um, but it really, what they were doing was just the symbolism of putting the white ribbon on. And when it, when you know, push came to shove, this is the position they, um, they, um, you know, put out there. And I must congratulate um, Jenna as well on her really honest piece that she wrote yesterday about white ribbon movement and what that symbolized, and um, you know how they, they pretty much failed in their task mm. um, to stand up for women's rights. And this is why it's important. Um, that, you know, women are in control of, of campaigns for their rights as well. I think it, it, and I'm not saying that everyone else shouldn't come along, but who should have the control? We should have the control. Mm. Any other questions? There's one. Hi, there. my name's Jessie. I have a question for Gabrielle. Um, am I correct in assuming that the speech you gave tonight was not the first time you've delivered it? Oh, no, that's the first time. I, mean, right. I, I wrote it on Twitter, but that's the first time I've read it out aloud to a group. Okay, great. I just wanted to ask you whether, in the, if you had given it in the past, what kind of, if, if any backlash you had from male audience members. Well, I, I, so I can't tell you live, li, um, from live audience members because it's the first time and I... Is my husband the only one here? I'm not. <laughs> oh, there's Hello, man. Um, you can tell me your responses after. But I did uh, get a lot of response from Twitter. And um, I, I actually had written this three months before I published it and then hesitated. I had written it for Twitter and hesitated, it, hesitated sharing it because Twitter can be a really ugly place. And I, I have kids. I thought, I'm, I'm going to be attacked. This could be bad um and kind of hit that boiling point with Kavanaugh and, and hit publish and honestly the response was um mostly positive now part of that was because I was brutal about like mute and block when, you know like if anyone was there to be a jerk so maybe I didn't see a lot of the negativity but there were a lot of responses from men that were like oh yeah okay yeah I mean like they they you could see it kind of click on for them that like and I don't know if they were remembering past experiences where maybe they pressured someone to have sex without a condom or suggested it would feel better without or whatever it was. Um, but all of a sudden going, oh, this is this tiny moment for me that can turn into a lifetime of issues for her. And um, they just had never seen a position that way. So the response has actually been really great. There are men that are furious about it. And their main, the main thing they're mad about is that no, it should be equal. It should be equal responsibility. And I always say, that sounds amazing. That would be amazing. <laughs> is, it, is it equal now? Has it ever bothered you that it's not equal now? Anyway, and basically that's their big thing. It's like, what? You can't put it all on us. It's got to be equal. And I'm like, okay, that'd be great. Let's do that. Anyway. Hi, um, just a simple question. Um, I'm wondering what you would advise, to, or the, the whole panel, would advise young people to do to contribute contribute to this conversation in our communities and in our groups of friends and that kind. Of um, I would say uh, use the platforms you have. If you you know it's free to start a blog, Twitter's free, Facebook. Th these platforms are free, and women um, are really good at using them to share their stories um, in a way that uh, 
I think are, are actually better than men at doing it. Um, women are natural storytellers. We sh- we're used to sharing with each other. And if you don't feel like you have a platform, if you don't feel like you have access to sharing your story in a nationwide newspaper, share it on your blog, spread the word, um, and invite others to share it. You can create a platform easily where you say, oh, did, do you have a Me Too moment or do you have a, a story that you need to share? And and start publishing those, and they can be anonymous, or, or or they can be named. It doesn't really matter. But the more that people share, and the more the women see them, the more confident they are about sharing their own stories. And all of a sudden, you get the movement that you need. You get the oh, this is much more widespread, whatever it is, um, than we thought it was. Uh, one of my experiences in, to I guess doing exactly what you just said because I didn't really know where to start, and I just sort of tweeted and then got quite a bit of attention from that um, and the consequences so be careful <laughs> in other but, words bad as well as good but um but it it's also just talking to friends and family who you wouldn't normally talk about this particular topic with like I talked to my dad my dad is a conservative man country farmer and I had to say hey dad I got sacked and this is why and he turned around and he said, oh, I've been reading a lot about this in Ireland and they've just had this referendum. And so he was able to, he had a platform of what he could talk about because there was something out there publicly. So we had this conversation that I could never imagine in my whole life having. Um, so even some components of it is just friends and family because what I've found is that I've got a lot of friends who now talk to me about morning after pill, about um, the like medical termination and all kinds of other, as, other aspects that they had no one to talk to but they've either dealt with it personally or they're interested and they didn't, they weren't comfortable going to like a, um, a women's health or anything like that. So that private conversation I think is just as important as your platforms as dare I say as an ex-person who used to deal with a lot of letters with um, ministers is writing to ministers writing to your local MPs adding a voice adding stories off the back of my campaign um, I had 35,000 people um, sign on to a petition I encouraged them all to write to Will Hodgman mm-hmm. dear Will here's my story this is why this is really important sure some people ended up with random responses cookie-cutter responses or the likes, but someone still had to deal with all of those and someone still had to read all of those and the effort of writing that and putting it out there, I think, starts that conversation. So whether you're doing it publicly or whether it's more meaningful that you're doing it privately or if you see a poly who's publicly backing this in and you support them and you offer them a story, you offer to volunteer, you offer to do bits and pieces and it could be small, it could be huge, but I think it's still just contributing to that broader opportunity. I think you both have said it all, but what came as a real shock to me during the campaign when we started talking about abortion law reform, decriminalizing abortion, was that young women were saying to me, and this is this was 2014 when we started, that you know they said that when they had conversations about reproductive rights, especially talking about abortion, they said their voices would drop. Even then, five five of them were sitting around. That is the huge stigma and shame that is attached to abortion um, because, for one, it being in the Crimes Act and because we had not spoken about it for a very long time. You know, we had huge um, battles in the 70s and, you know, got some gains. But after that, we kind of, because of circumstances and other things, we just thought, okay, let's maintain what we have and not try and risk it. And so young women were saying it's... Like, we, f- we feel shame 
when we talk about it. So that's the power of having those conversations, I think, at a very, very basic level. Um, you know, it is, uh, we should never be ashamed of making decisions that are right for us and for our bodies. So I think that's really important. And you know, call up your MPs. My experience is even more powerful than writing to them. Call them up, go and see them. It is your absolute right. We are lucky to live in a democratic society. You know, we've got to tell them what we want. And if they don't do it, then we kick them out. Yes. Um, my question's for Moraine. I feel like over the past years we've had so many incredible achievements within um, de decriminalising abortion, uh, you know, all over the globe, but of course in Australia as well. But women are still facing so many barriers to access what is such a basic health healthcare. You have women in, you know, rural New South Wales travelling 10 to 12 hours just to access their nearest abortion provider. What can we do to break down these barriers, I guess, is my question. Um, so the one thing we talked about a lot during the campaign, and I'm going to do much more of it, is to have access in public hospitals. That's really what we need. We need it to be... Um, you know, in Medicare, we need it and we need it in public hospitals. That's what we need. In New South Wales, you know, it is provided in some public hospitals, but it's Hardly pretty much any. a lottery. Hardly any. Yeah, exactly. Almost Very none. few. And it, is, and it is a lottery yeah. as well. It depends on what hospital you end up in. And so I think that's the main thing that we have to change because it is very expensive. It's privatized. And like you said, rural, regional women, apart from paying the cost of the procedure itself, they have to travel. The travel costs, the accommodation costs, what happens back at home if they have, you know, family and other children. So I think that's, that is the next step. And that's exactly, you know, what you experienced as well. You actually had to leave the state. Yeah. Um, and many people have to do that. So I think that's really critical. And that's something we can actually look at at the federal level as well. Mm. I just want to take it back to Anne and what you spoke about earlier about the importance of just talking about this stuff and I want to share my experience of growing up in a family where my father when I was a teenager and my brother we were close in age my father was a community volunteer for family planning who ah. went to schools <laughs> and did That's the demonstrations so, <laughs> so we had um you know there was a drawer in the bedroom that was full of things that my brother and I learned about I think he was a little bit more worried about my brother's possible irresponsible ejaculations than he actually was worried about, um, <laughs> you know, uh, me not thinking about it. But I learnt a lot about what my options were and that was really important. I just knew that they were there and it's a very important thing and I thank family planning for being around. Family planning has been in New South Wales for 92 years and it's the oldest family planning organisation in Australia and we're going strong. We're not going backwards. But I just, I just want to take what you've said and for me explain what that means to me a little bit. We've talked a lot about talking about abortion and it is a taboo subject, even if this group finds it easy to talk about it. But at a community level, it's absolutely a taboo subject. But we don't even talk about sex. You know, family planning, New South Wales, spends a lot of time teaching health professionals and teachers how to talk about sex. So I think we've actually got to demystify sex as well and make it okay to talk about sex and sex in all sorts of ways so that we can then get to some of the more difficult conversations around sex. Um, because if we don't even have a language to talk about that that we share between women, between generations and between men and women, 
how are we going to talk about the really pointy stuff? And abortion is a very difficult decision for a woman. It's not something women take lightly, despite what some and quite a lot, not Marine, politicians might say that women just make this decision nine months into the pregnancy or, you know, they use it as a form of contraception. What a load of twaddle. Um, but women do make these decisions about abortion, but it's a tough time for them because they don't have a way to talk about it and they don't have an easy conversation with their parents or their siblings or their peer group about that. So let's also extend what you're saying. I mean, I'm, I'm the CEO of Family Planning. Um, when I took the job at Family Planning, bef before that I ran the breast screen program and my kids said to me, Mum, you've just gone south and whatever you do, don't talk to our friends about this. <laughs> but I did talk to their friends about it and I did have condoms around the house and so many of my friends struggled because they didn't know how to talk about sex so they asked me to give the condoms to their teenage sons. But anyway, look, it is symptomatic of, you know, the repressiveness in which we approach discussions about fundamental things about being people, including our sexuality. So I think to talk about abortion we've got to talk about sex and we've got to talk about gender and we've got to talk about all sorts of complexities in relation to all of that. And we also need to be an inclusive society around all the gender issues. Um, my question, I guess, is for Gabrielle. Um, you were talking about in the United States how, um, you know, it's a very polarising issue. You've got people on the, on the right who are, you know, making one statement against abortion and then therefore they're automatically, you know, um, in favour. Um, I just wanted to ask, I guess, if you think that... Um, you know, writing letters to your MP is going to make those changes or whether or not we're going to have to get to a, um, a stage where the whole country is talking about it and being very public on both sides, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's going to be a... I think it's going to be that kind of grassroots conversation where everyone's talking about it. Um, one thing I liked about the conversation happening around my Twitter thread that I saw is that... It actually, um, you actually don't have to say abortion. You don't have to even talk about it. You can, you're, you're, it's before you get to abortion. We're talking about prevention. We're talking about unwanted pregnancies. We're talking about sex. And it made it easier for people to talk about because we, we never even got to abortion. We don't have to think about that if we do this. And, um, and so it was interesting because the reactions from very conservative people that were anti-abortion still loved the thread because it was saying here's some real ways to reduce abortion or let's talk about it and people who are very pro-legal abortion loved the thread so because we because it is such a sensitive topic so can we approach it from another angle where we don't actually have to say the word you know or, or don't have to approach it in an insensitive way on any of these topics I think getting people talking is huge and uh, for me that that seems at least from what I've seen a grassroots level conversation where I'm talking to my neighbor, I'm talking to my family, I'm talking on my blog and other people are doing the same thing is how that works. And I just want to go back to what I said originally. Making this a conscience vote of individual politicians in relation to their personal views is where this often ends up. And is that what we want? To do, to change things, we've got to make those politicians 
very clear about what our views are. To do that, we've got to talk to each other and we, we've, we've got to write letters, but we've also just got to go and see them. And we've got to go and see them as coalitions and really make it clear in our current political system that if you don't vote the way that we expect you to vote as a community, we're going to get rid of you because that's very powerful these days. So it is political action, but it's, I agree, it has to come from the grassroots because at the moment all the power is in the conscience vote. And I think there is a little bit of difference between the US and Australia in the sense that our community is not divided on this issue, like they weren't divided on the issue of equal marriage, really, overwhelmingly, our community. And we actually did a very scientific uh, polling before we started our campaign of New South Wales that had never been done. Like in the high 80s, you know, pro-choice. It was massive. It was massive. And well-known. It's absolutely... Yeah, absolutely. There have been survey after survey. So it is the politicians. And I think what you both said earlier, they don't represent us. Who are these people? Like I see them every day. They do not represent the community. And part, partly it is about what Angela said because they don't come from the community. You know, they come, they are career politicians. In New South Wales Parliament, when we debated the bill in the upper house, there are just nine women out of 42 members, let alone the other diversity of genders, of you know, <coughs> ethnic backgrounds. There's nothing there. So our parliaments do not represent the amazing, amazing richness of contemporary Australian society. And that's something in the you know, medium to longer term we really need to think about changing as well. Uh, it's a bit left of field, this. Um, I, just in the way that we're talking about um, abortion, it seems to me that there's never been a place for grief for the discussion of grief. And I think it was you who made some sort of suggestion that, you know, one of the reasons why people don't understand it or those people who don't understand it, because they, they have some kind of unrealistic flippant idea about it. So I'm just wondering what you think the place of discussion about grief is in this. Are you talking about grief in relation to women who've chosen to have an abortion? Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to be really clear about this. Um, I've done international studies and international literature views and systematic reviews around this issue because this is an issue that politicians raise. In fact, um, our current Minister of Women has raised it and saying there is an enormous um, groundswell of women who've had an abortion and, and they feel enormous grief about it. And there is absolutely no evidence for that. Absolutely no evidence for that. What I know from the evidence at the present time is that a woman who suffers from some mental health issues prior to getting pregnant and making the decision suffers from mental health issues post the decision. So if a woman has mental health struggles and she's having to face an abortion, she should give, be given the option if she wants of having counselling to assist her through that because the abortion won't change the mental health issues and that might manifest itself as grief. Now you're talking to the clinical psychologist a bit here. Um, however, most women, if you talk to them about having the decision to have an abortion, say it's a really tough decision. I really had to search my soul. I had to think about what I wanted. I had to think about my values. But when they make that decision, and it's a considered responsible decision, and they make it about... I don't know if you guys know that most abortions happen in two age groups. One, the very young, and the, and the other cohort, which is equally big, is women who've had their families. They've had their children and they're pregnant again and they know they just can't cope. They can't be a good parent to more. 
they've really reached the end of what they're capable of doing as a human being. And, you know, go back to Anne Summers earlier and about what they want to do with their lives to give themselves personal integrity. So most women who, who make the decision don't grieve. They make the decision and they move on. So we're going to continue. Family Planning New South Wales has decided to become an abortion provider, both for medical and surgical abortion, so that it's women's choice, not doctor's choice. And we will be doing specific research on this question because it is the question that gets raised all the time. Women made a decision, but they didn't know the decision they were making. They didn't consider the issues and later they just felt bad about it. Now, the message in that is pretty awful, isn't it? So that's my answer for you. Yes, I just have one more question. So you spoke at length about grassroots activism and getting women to have a conversation amongst themselves uh, for change. But really, I'd imagine that you need to get the mainstream media on board. How do you sell a pro-woman message to our current mainstream media and have they taken up your campaign? Um, does I I want to throw that one to Jenna. <laughs> it's okay. How do, how do we engage the media, Jenna? Um, okay. So you engage the media by writing uh, lots and lots of um, op-eds, by writing tweets, by writing by making stories on social media, by um, trying to write op-eds in a whole range of areas, by having rallies and inviting people to come. ...by taking actions. I mean, the action that the Irish women took... ...so this was what some people might call a stunt. The action that the Irish women took... ...where they were all in their suitcase... ...gathering, taking their suitcases... ...going home to Ireland to to vote on um, abortion rights... ...that was so widely publicised... ...and it also made people feel something. So we can't just take a political action... ...we also have to make sure that people feel... ...because it is those feelings that are going to... ...push our politicians to recognise that we agree... ...we are the 80%, the 88%, just as we did with the plebiscite... ...we can make change. And lots of pressure on um, media, lots of fantastic actions... That's what's, ...that's what's going to engage them. Yeah, this was something that I personally experienced... ...and I was, it was um, quite an interesting, I guess, evolution for me... ...in media, instead of talking about a product or asset I was selling... Instead, it was a story that was a bit shit, to be honest. Um, but there are some really amazing um, journos out there that are desperate for these stories um, and that are really looking for people who are willing to put forward views or ideas or their lived experience, whatever that is. And you can do that um, under Name Withheld. And I did that for multiple stories with um, Gina from BuzzFeed and she... She handled my story so beautifully and we got two really amazing stories. I worked with Rihanna Whitson from ABC in Tasmania and she, she's been on ABC, um, TV, nationally, as well as a really strong local agenda. Sam Maiden was fantastic for me and she helped me navigate the media um, system and the, um, the media environment. I um, was fortunate to work the project. Um, 7.30 report, there are all these people that want these stories that just know that what's happening right now is not right. They know their audience wants to know what's happening and and how to address this issue. So I think it's also looking at like-minded journos, working with them, providing them uh, the opportunities to tell our stories and encouraging other people to to share their story if they want to. Um, I know that it's uh, like my biggest concern is that I end up 
almost like a poster girl on this particular issue because I'm not afraid of telling my story. But I want to encourage other people if, if they want to and if they're comfortable not to feel that they can't. Like there is room. There is so much room. Um, and more of those stories helps take away the stigma. It helps take away that taboo aspect. And seriously, there are stories. And I would rather tell my story than have someone else say, I'll tell it for you from a particular agenda that they've got. And that's what we're hearing about with, you know, the grief aspects or or other components here. So if we're telling our story and we're working with people who respect it, respect the issue and have that same objective at the end, then, then we're right. And thinking about the opportunity that, you know, we've had some great achievements last year with same-sex marriage. With There's now a big gap there. I don't understand why all the organisations aren't out there going, okay, let's have a look at something that is going to be really important for 51% of Australia's population. So why can't these organisations, there is this gap, have a look at what they can do on this particular issue, help us work for national reform, get it in the public hospitals, have this as a low cost free ideally still have choice if you want private I don't have an issue with that at all I I was quite fortunate where I went they had the wraparound services I cannot fault it at all um but I just think that we need to have an agenda have a goal have a vision and I don't think anyone has that role at the moment there's not one bringer together of everything I want to end this on a positive note (laughs) I really want to end it on a positive note because we've achieved a lot We've achieved reproductive rights in so many ways. Women have access to contraception, which wasn't the case when I was in primary school, believe it or not. I'm one of eight children and I have six brothers, one more than Anne Summers. Um, And they're they're good men too, but, you know, we have access and we have choice these days. Um, We've also got... we've, We've had and we will continue to have sex ed in school. We've just got to make sure we, we fiercely own that. Um, and we these days have abortion law reform in all states and territories bar New South Wales. And there's some changes that need to happen in South Australia to bring medical abortion on, on online. That's a bit more complicated because they had progressive laws around surgical termination when that was the only option. So there's a bit of work to be done in South Australia, but they're doing it. But New South Wales is not there. So... Um, and we have uh, a lot more conversation these days, these days about domestic violence and sexual violence. Um, and that's really important because there are issues about power and equality as well. So what have we got to do? Um, I think we've got to re- remove abortion from the criminal code in New South Wales. And we've got to talk to the community about it because this group is obviously aware it's in the criminal code. But most people don't know that. So we've actually got to talk. We need to get it out of the criminal code. Um, We need to get abortion access for all, not just the wealthy. Um, And it is the case that in in socioeconomically more disadvantaged areas, they're having more children, they don't have the choice. And in rural areas, they're not, by and large, coming to Sydney. They're just having those children and suffering as a consequence of, of that. Um, I think what we need to do is ensure we're engaging youth and that needs to start with comprehensive sexuality education in schools, covering all of the issues and particularly those of rights and engaging young people in discussions about rights Um, and and as part of that engaging them in the, the global actions and instruments that exist because Australia doesn't actually operate 
very much in the international stage. And there's a lot of international action around this. Um, I think we... Marine raised it before, but Zoe's law's up. We've got to fight Zoe's law. We're fighting Zoe's law, but, you know, that that has reared its ugly head again and we've we've got to make sure we we achieve that law not being passed. And we have to look at the broader range of reproductive options, including the use of long-acting reversible contraception and making those available to women so that they can also take more protective action than just of the pill. And there's a lot of complex issues around that too. So, look, there's a lot of good work to do. We can do it. Uh, we're going to get there in New South Wales with abortion law reform. We are going to get there. And we are going to get there with access services. Um, we access to services. We will. And it won't just be around medical abortion. It'll be around medical and surgical. It should be the woman's choice. Um, and I thoroughly agree with Maureen. It should be the woman's choice, not the doctor's choice. People, women should take advice about every decision they want advice about. But it should be their choice. So I'm optimistic. I wouldn't be in my role if I, I wasn't. Maureen's still there. <laughs> You've shown local courage about talking about the issue and that's really important because you encourage others to speak out. You've raised a really important international discussion about all of those issues in relation to sexuality, um, con um, conception and reproductive responsibility. I think there's many other people out there talking too. So let's all work together on this. There's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgee, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, and many, many, many more sessions of the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney yet to come. So jump on onto our website and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals. They're a really important part of our writing, reading and living community. <laughs>